So we're in Esther 5, and um, the story is a fascinating story. I don't know about you. I, I um, have read Esther often. I saw the Veggie Tales movie. I um, have seen it, you know, done on the, you know, the, the, the Lifetime TV. I mean, so, so there have been a lot of ways in which this has been artistically portrayed. I, I've seen it on flannel board growing up in Sunday school, and, and, and yet I've never studied Esther like I've had the opportunity to study it over the last several weeks, and I've found myself blown away at what is beneath the surface of this story that so many of us know so well. You have a, a king who seems to be the king of the world, and in and, and, and chapter 1 shows us, uh, the author demonstrates all of his power over everything, and yet you realize that over and over, chapter by chapter, his power is only an illusion. It is only a facade. You find one plucked out of a kingdom, one who is... Um, uh, a Jew named Esther, one of the people of God being raised by her cousin Mordecai, who finds herself plucked out of obscurity and set in a harem and, and put through a beauty school and finally spends a night with the king all, the, all so she can win his favor and become, remarkably, she becomes the queen of Persia only to find herself in the most precarious place in all the world at that time. A, a Jew who's a queen who's been concealing her identity, now having to make a stand in, in, in uh, unity, fidelity with her people to an unpredictable, moody, powerful king, all the while an enemy named Haman plotting an execution and genocide of those whom God calls his own. And so that's where we are. And we ended chapter 4, and Mordecai is at the, at the king's gate, and he's in sackcloth and ashes. He's in the in the grave clothes, if you will, and grieving and wailing and, and, and comes to Esther where she's in the palace and says, you've got to go. Um, you, you, you've been put here for such a time as this. You're the queen. You've got to go to the king. You've got to plead on behalf of your people. And so we find that she um, agrees, although she knows she can't do it alone, and so she will ask for the Jews in the capital to fast with her for three days as she prepares to step into the unknown and unpredictable presence of the king. This is where we'll pick up. Look in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, I always love when I see that in the Scriptures, on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. If you remember, she's told us in chapter 4 that no one can go into the presence of the king without being requested for. If you do, if you showed up in the presence of the king, you faced certain death 
unless he decides to put his scepter out and welcome you into his presence. That was the law. That was the rules of the game. Well, chapter 5's opening is the contrast to chapter 4's opening. You see it in the clothes, from, from sackcloth and ashes to, to royal robes of the palace. You, you see this wailing in, in one hand. You see this sort of timidness and insecurity on the other hand. Outwardly, dressed in her robes, she would seem strong and regal, yet inwardly you've got to realize there's a humility and a vulnerability and a weakness. I mean, she's been on a three-day fast, fully aware of the danger that she would be in. Verse 2, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the scene, the scene could have gone so many different ways. And you get the sense here. There is this divine choreography at work in this delicate dance that leads to Esther winning the king's favor. In fact, if, if you wanted a theme for chapter 5, one of the themes that you could write down would be divine choreography. Every step, every detail, every twist, every turn in this chapter you're going to see is divinely choreographed. You know, Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. No king has ever intimidated God. No matter how wealthy he was or extensive his kingdom or powerful his armies, God can handle anyone. In fact, Chuck Swindoll writes it this way. He says, he can handle your husband. He can handle your wife. He can handle your kids. He can handle your pastor. He can handle the person who gives you grief. He can handle your ex-mate, that person who made you all those promises and broke most every one of them. He can handle your enemy. He can handle your most intimidating situation because in the hand of the Lord, any heart is like water. Look at verse 3, and the king said to her, Well, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and, and, and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Notice the request. The request is beyond what she could have hoped for or imagined. And as readers, I mean, we're, we're, we're moving. We move from, from anxiety to relief. Now, now we have this great expectation. Here's this request. What's your request? Anything you want up to half my kingdom. You know, it seems like the perfect time. It's what we want. We expect it. Esther to seize the moment, you know, to lay it all out, to move swiftly to the request. Then quickly to the celebration of the victory. And as we're drawn into the story, and that's what the author's doing, he's drawing us into this story. He's drawing you into the story. We find our impatience exposed. We yell, you know, ask him. Yet Esther's going to prove to be more wise than we are. And as it unfolds, Esther's going to be shown to have a wisdom that's actually extraordinary. 
James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God for it. He gives it generously. There's going to be a wisdom that Esther's going to exercise that comes beyond what her faculties all on their own could produce. You pick it up in verse 4, there's this banquet that is prepared. While the request was beyond what she could have hoped for, I want you to notice, it is not beyond what she prepared for. Not only has she been fasting for three days, she's also been preparing a banquet. She has a plan. She's prepared. She's culturally savvy and wise. In verse 4, notice two things. One, her ask, it's humble, it's wise. She honors the king. I prepared a feast for you. And in the Hebrew, the, the king is the subject. The invitation is to him. Haman's invitation secondary. Although you find out it's really more than that or there's this incredible subtlety in her words. Also notice, this is clear. It isn't going to be a dinner for two, this banquet. It's going to be a dinner for three. See, it changes the dynamic. Esther is not going to rely on seduction. She's going to lean into wisdom. Not, not the strength of her beauty. She's leaning into something else. Notice verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what's your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Notice all of a sudden, Esther's in charge. The king's following her direction. In verse 6, the king's going to make the request again. This is the second request of three, actually. The third one's going to come in chapter 7, and it won't be until the third request that Esther actually lays it all out for the king. And it's hard to know why she doesn't seize the opportunity right here. They've come to the banquet. It's gone as planned. There it is. The request comes again. But I think this, she's patient, but her patience comes from a sensitivity to the scene. There are things unspoken and unwritten in this account that are factoring in. And I think she's showing wisdom and sensitivity and discernment. And while the author doesn't say this, and there's no evidence that Esther acknowledges this, I think we can conclude she's being led by the Spirit here. You know, when there's a check in your gut and when something's out of place or it's out of sorts or something, you know, you often can't explain, you can't put your finger on it, but you know, listen, this isn't the time. Something is unsettled. Often that is the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. And we want to be in tune with that, to hear it, to respond to it, however subtle it may be. Well, look at verse 7. Then Esther answered, my, my wish and my request is, and we're kind of holding our breath here. We're waiting for it. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Well, her request is another banquet 
in which then she'll give her request. Notice the end of 8. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. It's, it's strategic brilliance. Probably better, it's God's providential wisdom. She's going to reframe the quest of the king in such a way that she's making it obedience to the king's command. Here, Esther couldn't have possibly imagined what was going to take place overnight. And here's what you and I, as the readers, could never have expected. And this is, this is I think, the, the heart of what the author's drawing us into is that God's relief and deliverance. Remember, that's what Mordecai said. Hey, Esther, if you don't do this, relief and deliverance will come from some other place. And we said those are words used of God's activity. Here I would tell you that God's relief and deliverance, His salvation, it will be complete. Esther could have made the request here, and it is very possible that the Jews would have been saved. However, it is likely Mordecai wouldn't have been. The other thing I would say is not only is God's relief and deliverance complete, God's relief and deliverance, His salvation, will also include judgment. There's no peace without justice. It's a theme of the Bible. We know it to be true in our own lives. We're experiencing it. We're feeling it. We're witnessing how as fallen and broken people, we, are, we utterly fail at both peace and justice. Well, in, in verses 9 through 14, we're going to see this divine delay. Look, look at it real quick. It's the surety and subtlety of God's powerful hand. In verse 9, and Haman went out that, joy, that day joyful and glad of heart. This is comedy here. It's like a, a parody, uh, a parody parade of Haman that's going to last through chapter 7. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, they never, neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman's inflated ego is going to be popped by the smallest pen. Notice the delay of Esther's request. The, the delay that we, it's hard to understand as the reader, it turns out to be the sure and subtle power of God's guiding hand, this divine choreography. God is going to work off stage to accomplish fully his vindication, his salvation of his people. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and, and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. One writer says it's the, it's, this is dramatic and delightful comedy. Then Haman, verse 12, said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, I am, tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me. 
so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I'll quickly say that is a telltale sign of idolatry. See, what happens is Haman's he, he worships significance and value and honor. He worshiped prestige. And when your life is, is oriented around, organized around, making your name big, you have a fragile life. It is a life that's easily unraveled, never satisfied, impossible to sustain. See, when your life is oriented around making God's name big, when your life is oriented around God's glory rather than your own, criticism isn't fatal. It doesn't mean it doesn't sting. Sure it does. But listen, what you ultimately worship will determine what you are worth. You're significant. If significance, prestige, honor, money, marriage, parenting, status, if if those are what you worship, if that is what you've oriented your life around, all of that's fragile. Your life is a roller coaster. If the object of your worship is God, then everything else can come apart at the seams, and yet your worth remain intact. Well, look at verse 14. We'll talk more about that next week. But then his wife, Zeresh, by the way, if you're looking for biblical names for your children, not Zeresh, okay? Just saying. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Well, let a gallow 50 cubits high be made. In the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. 50 cubits, to give you an idea, is about as tall as a six-story building. In fact, in chapter 7, you find that it can be seen from the king's palace. Haman's ego fully exaggerated and, it, and inflamed by those around him, his wife and his friends. Yet in the next chapter you find they are going to cut him loose so fast. It's an odd place to end this story this morning. We're going to pick up with chapters 6 and 7 next week. because we're, we're kind of left hanging here. See, I didn't even mean to be funny. <laughs> that's how it happens. But let me say a few things here, and then we'll close. But when we consider the empire of Xerxes, Ahasuerus, who's the king at the time, When we consider his kingdom and him as the king, and then we contrast that with with God, who is the king of a kingdom, we're struck by the differences. I mean, the God that we serve and that we worship, whose image we were created in, is an altogether different king than the one that Esther knew in Xerxes. See, approaching God's not like approaching the Persian king with our knees trembling and our hearts wondering if we'll survive. 
the God that we serve, He invites us to come into His presence regularly, frequently, to make our petitions known, to make our requests known. We don't have to have flowery court language. We don't have to maneuver in tricks so that God will give us what we need. The God of the Bible is a father to us. So much so, Jesus says, even if earthly fathers provide good things for their children, how much more will our heavenly Father give to us the things we need? It's a contrast. It's a contrast between Mordecai's request to Esther to put her life on the line so that the king would be appeased. I mean, so, 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 so she can beg. And yet Paul commands the Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The writer of Hebrews says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, God is a king who has an open door policy. And the reality is, it's one of the things Ricky said Wednesday night, we're not very good at praying. We're not very good at going to our king with our requests, with our confession. See, the contrast is it's not that it's no cost to our king. It's, no, that it's not no cost to God. Listen, our, our entry into his presence, that has been made free. The, 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 every obstacle has been eliminated for us, but it was not, it did not come cheaply to God. See, as sinners, death is required before we enter into the presence of an all-holy God. But God can hold out his scepter of grace because his rod of judgment has fallen on another. It's fallen on his son Jesus. Our peace with God came at the price of Jesus' blood. See, the reason we can have peace is because God poured out His justice on His Son. He died on a cross, and on the third day, He was raised from the dead. He left His grave clothes behind and clothed in the royal resurrection, the robes of glory. And so now nothing can separate us from God. Not death, nor life, not heavenly forces or earthly trials, not adversary, not prosperity. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we have the promise of God Himself that He hears our prayers, He answers our prayers. And He gave us that promise through the presence of His Holy Spirit so that we come with boldness and confidence and with the very Spirit of God who prays 
for us when we don't even know the words to pray. And all that is given to us as believers now, and yet there is still more to come. We're left longing for the fullness of that presence in, in total and the gift of the Spirit, it's, just, it's a down payment of our, of our great inheritance. And knowing God now is still the greatest treasure that this world affords. But there is a fullness of knowing Him that awaits for when we are face to face with Him. And so we have this hope. We, we wait. We long so that we will indeed know our Savior fully. So in the meantime, we wait for Christ's return. We wrestle with our hearts, the idolatry that constantly comes up to challenge our peace, our joy. We wrestle with a war that is at, a world that is at war with God and his people, and we recognize God's the only one who can bend the world to his will. And we don't wrestle alone. God's given us his spirit to produce in us what we could never produce on our own. And we don't wrestle forever. Because one day our wrestling work will be done. Ushered into the immediate presence of God forever. And for those that are in Christ... Your hope is in Jesus as your Savior. There's no fear on that day. Christ himself has opened up the door to us, and nothing can shut it. Joy and peace unconquerable then. And you know what? We can begin that joy and peace unconquerable now in him. If you haven't trusted him this morning, that's the first place to start. If you have, come into the presence of your king. Barge right in to where you are invited and welcomed. And lay your heart before the one that created you. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we ask of you to remind us that in everything we need you. In everything we are dependent upon you. Father, in everything we can trust you. That you are at work in ways that we do not see Father, we trust that you, you move the heavens and the earth according to your will. Father, that your desire for all of us is to know your peace, peace with you and peace with one another. And Father, that came at the greatest cost that anyone could have ever conceived the death of your son, Jesus. 
that, Father, you've offered us that peace by your grace, that we would receive it by faith, trusting in him. So, Father, I pray you do that in our hearts and our minds this morning. We, we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.